Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering three conversations from episode 58, the beginning of our year-end wrap-up with Jorn, Louise, and me, plus from our vault, two conversations from season three, episode 20, Jorn's first episode as co-host. The second half of our April conversation starts by looking at areas of research Jorn is conducting through his lab in Mainz. After this, Louise asks Jorn to define the one goal he would like his lab to be known for. Jorn discusses two items. The need to distinguish the disease from what patient what Jorn describes as the gestalt of the patient. And then how treatment will evolve as drugs become available. And he knows the podcast along with it. I mentioned that we discussed drug studies far more often early on in the podcast when trials were starting and observers believed that Ocalava would be approved. But as the pandemic slowed trials and drugs did not get approved, our focus shifted somewhat to the broader set of issues we deal with today. From here, I ask Jorn how we might meet the challenge of making time for a new disease amongst frontline physicians who are time constrained and like to process information in bite-sized data-driven pieces. Specifically, I ask whether the historical make a second first impression concept will work for marketing fatty liver disease. Jorn suggests the key instead might be to make a strong second impression, as he puts it, around treating patients with significant levels of disease. And Louise agrees, but notes that while we're making second impressions with physicians, we will be making first impressions with most liver disease patients. Her point to the patients is simple. Fat is dangerous in the liver. The rest of our conversation looks at different models and approaches to educate and treat patients and the kinds of testing, etc., that bring the greatest value. Along with in-person meetings, Jorn joining the podcast was our single biggest change this year. It was fascinating to me to compare where Nashville was when he joined back in April to what we all are thinking just seven months later. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the conversations in our LinkedIn discussion group. We're aware of your interest in public health through the work you're doing with Jeff that you kind of found your way into, and you've explained that process, and the questions that we're talking about right now. What are the other research interests that you spend your time on? Jörn Schattenberg. My lab that I'm maintaining in Mainz, and we're still doing a fair amount of basic science work, is looking at inflammatory liver cell injury mechanisms of liver inflammation. We're looking at cytokine signaling pathways and their role in mediating, for example, insulin resistance from the liver perspective. So we always ask the question, you know, what's the relevant role, the hepatic compartment in model? Sometimes it's mice does play. And we're trying to identify these pathways that are potentially druggable from the liver perspective. And, uh, you know, having Scott Friedman here on the podcast has been very exciting because uh, parts of the work that we'll be doing with colleagues in minds are addressing those mechanisms of fibrosis, fibrogenesis. Louise Campbell. I've got tons of questions about AI, but tonight is not about AI. If you had to say what the legacy in the future would be, what is this one thing that you really want to resolve? one area, just the gold pinnacle. So the obvious barrier in this field is that we define liver inflammation by looking at liver tissue. And we're going to disconnect it by identifying a blood-based biomarker, the troponin of the liver, if you'd like, that tells us this patient is at risk of uh, fibrosis progression and needs treatment. I think this is a theme in every second podcast here. We need to dissociate the disease from the histological gestalt of the person or of the liver biopsy. The second thing is I think we'll have treatment available. I think we'll have medications within, let's say, two to three years approved in the indication of either 
fibrosing liver disease from NASH in advanced disease. And to be able to offer that treatment to patients that are progressing today and reaching end-stage liver disease, I think this is going to be the major breakthrough and it'll be very exciting to see the podcast evolve towards that hopefully not so far off day in the future that we can then prescribe medicine. I, I think it's an interesting comment about medications. Earlier in the podcast, when there were studies that were put into play in significant number before the pandemic and in the belief that OCA was going to get approved, we actually had more drug studies to talk about. Recently, because of those two phenomena, things have either slowed up or not gotten started. So I think we've had less. My expectation is that will pick up again in the coming year and we'll be able to spend more time talking about drug development. Although the other things certainly should not be excluded. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to go back to Jorn's comment about broadening the sweep of the folks we're talking to uh, more broadly into treating physicians and some of the implications of that. But if you come out of pharmaceutical marketing, which I do kind of, you understand that the challenge of a new medication or a new disease paradigm is that you're dealing with people who are very intelligent, very short on time, and who tend to be what Myers-Briggs or the old Jungian models would have described as sensing and judging, which is to say they want discrete bits of data where the data tells them what to do or leads them based on what they know to know what to do. And fundamentally, when you bring a new disease to the table, you're A, trying to make time where it's challenging to make time exist, as you're on point that already, and now we're back at greet them, treat them, and street them. But you also need to change the internal processes by which people evaluate data that's available. One of the terms I've heard used in marketing is that, you know, they say in life, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. But in fact, a lot of what I think we're working to do for the liver as we go into physician communities is exactly that, to make a second first impression. It's to say, fundamentally, this is what we knew, but now we know more. And what we know now that we didn't know then changes how we look at, at what we've got. So I've never had this conversation with either of you two. A, is that a sensible model to you? And then depending upon the answer to that, it's either yes, and here are the most compelling points we've got, or I would think about this a little differently, and here's what I think about. It. Let's share this with the audience one way or another. Sure. I'm going to I'm gonna give it a quick answer because I've been talking more and then uh, let Louise think about what she has to say about this. You know, I think this is really uh, making a strong second impression. It's not about the first impression. The first impression, this is a very frequent disease. It's difficult to tell from the outside who is the relevant patient. So as a drug marketer or as a drug developer, and I'm not in drug development, of course, you could say, you know, if I don't know who to treat and I treat everybody, my response rate is 20%. I'm not going to get high reimbursements for this drug development. It takes a long time to do the drug. And then you have an endpoint that's shaky at times or has some uncertainties. So that's maybe an indication that carries risk. But the second impression in this is that today we are in a much better position to actually find the relevant subgroups. So it's not 30% of the population. It's the 1% of the population that have advanced disease that develop endpoints, relevant endpoints that are detrimental for the patients. And these need treatment. And these endpoints can be prevented if you have a drug that's efficacy. Here, the second impression will come to that conclusion. There's a high unmet need. It's a druggable disease. And the impact for patients and lives is tremendous. I absolutely agree with Jean on that. There's a different aspect. When you talk to people who aren't patients, who come to have a look at their liver, most people don't know much about their liver. And when you engage, and we do obviously fibre scan and transient elastography, it is a first impression. It's a first impression how important that organ is in their life. It's a first impression as to how important that organ is in their future life. 
because we could gleam an awful lot with liver fat. It was interesting listening to Jean and Jeff talk about the bubble. I think you asked them to, they put more words in one bubble than I, I would ever put in a bubble. <laughs> These bubbles were massive. <laughs> My one thing for the bubble was fat is dangerous in the liver. There is no simple fat or fat is not simple. It's certainly not benign. So I was keeping it short because I was thinking while you were asking that question, oh, they'll come up with something short. Oh, no. (laughs) I use the phrases with the members of the public that I scan or even the patients that I scan is the fact your body thought your liver was so important. It was the only organ that regenerates. It's got live in the title. And we just keep it simple. Going back to Stephen's keep it simple, stupid. Let's bring it down to basics. It is the only organ that our bodies, when we were genetically developed, (laughs) was made to regenerate. But that's actually in there lies the problems that we have in getting a liquid biopsy with new tissue, with with the way it works. It's not designed to show us it's got a problem. So we do have to go hunting slightly for that needle in the haystack. For me, with people that we scan and the education and to engage them in their health, it is about the first impression of how to do that. Because hopefully most of these people with simple steatosis won't end up being patients either of endocrinologists, of cardiologists or hepatologists. So, But from a, from another standpoint, the work that Jean does in the primary care, this whole, and we've got several great examples in the UK and Nottingham and Southampton, you enrich the population of knowledge within a primary care area. You then get better referrals. You find the right patients and the density. That's the skill set is that when we put living specialists or nurse specialists into the community settings, they don't have to be there forever. What they aim to do is give that impression, educate about who should be screened, who should be scanned, the higher risks. And then the GPs roll on with it themselves. They take ownership of that. So it's enriching that body as the gatekeepers, as the delta, as Jean said. So I think there's so much work that can be done that means that they would automatically think liver. I use the phrase, if in doubt, rule it out, don't rule it in. But we're a long way from that. We've got a long way to go, but we have come a long way. That's the key. So hopefully that addresses some of it. But it, it's both a first and second impression for me, particularly with some of the patients. And, and again, I think it's much easier these days to make a strong second impression. And, you know, we said that phrase a number of times. Primary care physicians don't have time, but they are so motivated to do the best for their patient in the available time. And if we educate them on the relevance in a well-defined subgroup, you know, we don't have to tell them that they every need to check everybody for liver disease and they're going to shake their head. But if, you know, if it's the 1% or let's say the 5% in their population, a subgroup in the diabetic patients, they will do this just to provide good care to them. And it's just, we need to empower them and give them the tools they need to care for these patients and identify them. Yeah, I think that last point is really important. One of the phrases I use a lot on this podcast is that people do what's inspected, not what's expected. So it becomes easy to treat diabetes if what you're going for is glycohemoglobin lowering. And it becomes easy to treat dyslipidemias if you know that LDL is really what you're looking at it becomes easier to treat things where you've got simple target metrics. And by the way, part of the nature of sensing judging personality types is give me a data point. Give me the data point that tells me what I need to know. So I think one of the problems that the liver has had is 
that there is no data point. I mean, that, that's the reason for my idea of the swear jar for calling AFT-ALT liver function tests as compared to liver enzymes, is that it's too easy to call them a liver enzyme test and then treat their normality or abnormality on a plus minus two standard deviation curve as what we're looking for, but that tells us nothing about what we care about. One of the reasons I'm attracted to the idea of AI as a background tool is anything that can produce a single data point. I'm going to go where your was, which is I think I think primary care docs want to do the right thing, and they are short on time. So if if you can give me a number, a metric, a simple thing I can look at and say, okay, I've got to focus on that in this patient, then that is the place where you start to have impact. And I don't know whether it matters, whether it's 5% or 55%, if in fact you can prove that you really are going to have impact by looking at it, that, that I think remains to be seen. But I do agree with you, the rest, fundamentally what you're saying for those reasons. And then how do we do that? with primary care physicians in a podcast or with the endocrinologists or a gastroenterologist. You got to reach out and get them on here, Roger, and we should discuss it with them together and uh, just get their insights and hurdles. And by learning from each other, the tools will be refinable. And then in the end, to the best of our patients, we'll use those to diagnose the, the relevant cases. And that's another thing about the podcast. I think it really is a source of continuous academic discussion where ideas are emerging or you get to reflect on some of your thinking and instead of you know writing it down in your paper and not being able to discuss it with your colleagues that the podcast really is is an arena where you can go back and forth and exchange and, and get some other thoughts on so again i think this is one of the motivations for me to uh, to support you in this thank you and and the other thing i'm going to note is that we have just about finished building our uh, information infrastructure we will be populating it for the first time in the next couple of weeks with um, physician targets just basically physicians to reach out to and it's see what we're doing. And it'll be interesting to see how much uptake we get and how quickly. Because in the absence of drugs and the kind of promotion that comes along with drug company budgets, it's hard to, to see what happens when you reach out to the vast endocrinology or primary care, but even forget primary care, let's just do endocrinology for a minute and see how much engagement that community wants to have in this disease. We're about to start learning that. And we'll be doing that through the pilot series that we're running in endocrinology that I've been talking about. And we'll be talking on Tsunami about some of the results of that and what that tells us about how to educate and reach out to the community as well. So I'm, I'm personally really excited about that. And I'm delighted that that's one of the things you chose to focus on today, because I think going forward to make a real dent in this disease, we've got to start educating physicians as well as the communities we're talking to around. Okay, I'll do my typical closing question. 12 months later, what do you envision and hope will be different about the podcast or the reach of the entire Surfing Nash franchise? From my perspective, Roger, you've done a great job in building this. And, you know, you just entered into year three. So I think the numbers do tell their own story. I'm certain that this brand will grow. And I would think that, you know, maybe this is going to transform into a CME type of educational series at one point where physicians then go to get update on certain indications or certain tests and, and maybe get more listeners in. I think, you know, there's something you started. So maybe in 12 months, this will be a regular feature of this podcast. I was just thinking, A, along those lines, but B, along the lines of where we started at the beginning of the session. We're talking about the multi-comorbidity work that Sean does. Is the podcast potentially, the podcast potentially is a forum to develop that multi disciplinary network and discussion, bringing cardiology, bringing in endocrinology. We're obviously bringing in endocrinology with the four-part series. But to have that discussion in the open forum, to have the barriers discussed as to where we need to go, 
we've got patient advocates, we've got patient groups, we've got Donna. So again, to give that forum, and I, and I think that's the exciting part of where we can go in the third and fourth year, because it's becoming stronger across that base. So that excites me, because out of that, again, you break down the barriers, it's entertaining, it, it becomes fun, it's educational, and we can open those discussions in a way that we never could before, obesity management, things like that. So I'm very excited about where it can go, certainly in that multi-morbidity care management aspect. So the broader vision, right, and this is this is a tad ambitious, but what the heck, is to have a series of CME, really, or, or educational podcasts targeted at different subpopulations, and then to find people who are attracted to that and want to learn in that and start to expose them to tsunami, which will be really what it's been, maybe a little bit more broadly, more primary care, a little more multi-comorbidity, but a place where people are talking about cutting edge ideas, whether it's about new drugs, new tests, AI, better thoughts about patient management, that this becomes that place and that we have a whole satellite of educational tools around that for the different specialties or subspecialties or frankly patients who want to start to engage this disease on a different level. Uh, That will be the thrust of the next couple of years. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I, I share both of your enthusiasm. With that, let me note that it's a quarter to one in the morning in Sydney where Louise is, and we scheduled 45 minutes. We're at the end of that time right now. So you're on Louise's closing thoughts for this center. Brave one, go first. Well, my closing is, gee, I'm um, I'm a regular on this podcast now and uh, happy to join you. Looking forward to the next year. There will be more in-person meetings. Um, so it might well be that way, recording from all different parts across the world, depending on where that meeting might be on a Monday evening. But I think it won't lead to a situation where the podcast is being lost. You know, you said it was founded uh, in the context of uh, not being able to meet in exchange, but I think the way it has built over those last two years, it's one pillar of exchange of ideas around diagnostics and treatment options for NAFLD. So I think it's a good time and and, and fun. And again, thanks for for onboarding me. You're welcome to be onboarded. And we will all be in Barcelona together. So uh, you never know, we might have to do a Sunday recording. But um, I'd like to welcome you onto the podcast. I always love it when you you come on, but you will have to find a football team. <laughs> to join Roger and I in the discussion. You can have mine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you can buy Bayern Munich really cheap this week, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they're in they're in pain because they lost the match. Um, normally they win every game, so I think I would uh, want a little bit other. The Mainz again, I'll think about it, and uh, I'm following German <laughs> we'll soccer. Teach you the rules. Uh, yeah, uh, but I get the impression I'm not at the level that you guys are. Uh, first, first of all, on this podcast, with all due respect to Dr. Harrison, we call it football. He he can call while we play in the states real football, but we call football football. <laughs> That's what I played in high school. My closing comment is really simple. You know, I, I love what you brought to this podcast. The breadth of thinking, the integrating all that public health and primary care and clinical research and costing and that broad vision. I think as, as we move forward, that will be really an excellent thing to have with us at all times. People like the episodes that you're on. They do well. We get good feedback. And as we broaden out our view of what we're trying to achieve, I can't think of a better person to have along with us. It's our pleasure to onboard you. We are honored by your willingness to be onboarded. Nay, desire to be onboarded honors us. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with the next piece of our year-end review, this time including interviews with Scott Friedman and Donna Cryer, among others. You'll want to hear it. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>